Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That song you hear playing on our way in on every episode of The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll is from a brand new album called Instrumental from Rick DeFonzo. He is our guest. That's right. Uh, we want to congratulate you as well as welcome you, Rick. Marcus and I here. Marcus, good evening, good afternoon, and good night. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Hello. Rick, welcome to the podcast, and we have congratulations for you and uh, to us, too. Yeah. It's good to be here. Your music from Instrumental, which you've been working on, we'll talk about that in a second, but the music that you've been working on for this album for a while has been part of the podcast and just crossed 200,000 downloads, buddy. Whoa. At Spotify rates, that would be, I think, $11. I think you might be <laughs> overestimating. But but the yeah. fact that you can do that math in your head is very impressive. <laughs> Don't all DIY musicians have that software like embedded in a chip in their head, Rick? Well, I think it's 0. .003 cents per stream. You did the multiplication so fast yeah. on that, like a I computer speed. I'm <laughs> out there sitting with a calculator checking my figures. It's okay. <laughs> well, let's jump into the imbalance time machine and go back a few years to the beginning of this podcast. And Rick was putting some stuff out on the internet that he'd been working on for this new album. And we liked it. Right. And we asked you, hey, can we use some of your songs on our podcast? Sure. Absolutely. That's what he said then. And so now we have it officially, Marcus. It's yes. on like officially on tape that yeah. he gave us permission to do this. Otherwise, we're going to owe him $11. <laughs> I want it and I want it now. We'll Venmo you. Yeah. yeah that actually, it was a couple of years ago. And it's just now, I've been very lazy about the whole thing. It's just now coming out as a full record. And some of the stuff dates back to the 90s, so it's you know it's something that's just sort of evolved over time, a long time. Were you reworking the stuff constantly during this time period? Well, I, I collected things as I went along so over the years, and a few things I reworked because I just wanted to do them a little better, or I wanted to change the snare sound. There's always things you want to change going back in retrospect, you know, records live forever, so you kind of want to want to get it right. But there were some things, take a look inside, for example. There was something about that performance that I felt shouldn't be tampered with. That was from the early 90s. It was from like 94, 95, something like that. So I left that in its original state. Some things I reworked, and there were some newer things. So it's been, you know, a process, things I've been having in the back of my mind for 
20 years or so. I just finally decided to get off my ass and uh, put it out. Now, that song you hear at the beginning of the podcast every episode is called Bump in the Night. And that's one of the songs that's been around for a while. Tell us about that one. So that I did it in my basement at the, our house down the shore in, uh, in Belmar. It, it just sort of grew out of a, a, a percussion loop. Um, and, and I just added layer and layers and layers. And I, I, I really liked it and decided to leave that one alone. I didn't rework that one at all. But these things just happen sometimes. And uh, when it does, I, I kind of file them away and keep them for myself. Because I'm writing all the time. But I'm usually writing music for television and other industrial applications, bowling alleys. Well, we definitely want to talk to you about that, especially the bowling alley stuff. But uh, tell a- actually, I do want to talk about the bowling alley stuff because I have distant cousins on my mom's side who are involved in the New Jersey Bowling Association and very active. That's something to be fiercely proud of. Thank you. <laughs> Well, since uh, Marcus is pushing the Bowling Association, I was going to push for your album. People can find it on your website, rickdefonso.com slash instrumental uh, as emphasis on the mental part, because knowing you uh, for a long time, I think that was a good idea to put the emphasis on the mental aspect of these songs. Some of them are quite manic. Uh, A couple of them we use. uh, The one that we play in the middle all the time. Six to four. Yeah, six to four. Tunisia has become the uh, exit music, like when we're done at the end of the episode. And then uh, uh, the other one was Tell Me What You Want. That's how we use that when we're getting emails, uh, fan mail from some flounder, as we call it. These things all are present throughout episodes and and now we have more songs rick can we get permission from you on the air here to use those as well absolutely there's another one i'm about to finish finally called out of your mind which is really wacky different time signatures and it's just all over the place i had a, a great drummer sit in and play on it remotely hopefully there'll be a place for it somewhere in the show tell me what you want was an interesting thing that also is very old that was one of the first times I used drummer percussion loops in the 90s and I used that same loop in every section uh, and treated it in a different way and like sort of glued them all together in a Frankenstein kind of approach. Sounds cool. Besides guitar, do you play any other instruments on this record? I play them all, except for drums. Uh, in some cases, uh, in some cases, I'm doing the drum programming and using loops and things like that. The drums that I don't play are either played by Tony Mora or Greg Morrow. A couple of good friends of mine that have really amazing home studios in Nashville. I call them up and they they do me a solid and, and play on this stuff. And we have fun working remotely. But I Which everybody's it. been doing during the pandemic, but it works even outside of pandemic setting for a lot of people who, especially guys like you who have friends who are in different cities or all around the country or world. Yeah, strangely, the, the pandemic was good for a lot of musicians working out of the home. Hell of a way to make a living, but they, my... my Drummer friends especially uh, saw a definite uptick in their remote recording business. What about Tunisia? You haven't spoken about that one yet. Well, that's another one from, well, I'd say the early 2000s. And that also started with the percussion loop the, uh, that you hear in the beginning. Uh, and it just really inspired me. I put a synthesizer bass line that's kind of reminded me of something Peter Gabriel would do. And then I, when I picked up the guitar, I just sort of went into Jimmy Page emulation mode. So it's kind of a mishmash of influences, all of whom I love, but that just sort of happened. These things just kind of happen. There's no sort of malice and forethought involved. It is like kind of happened, like capture it and then file it away and don't release it for 20 years. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but all your friends who are listening in Philadelphia who know you a long time, they all just laughed like that too. As long as some of those guitars behind you in the room there where you're uh, talking to us from down there in Florida. Well, some of the guitars are quite a bit older than that, but uh, they're, they're all very special to me. I've been recording with them for years and some of them touring with for a long time. They're, they're my children. There's that kind of an attachment? Except I beat my children. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Pete! Stop. Pete uh, beats his children. Do you have a Rickenbacker hollow body in your collection? A, a, a hollow body 12-string, yes, I do. Rickenbacker 6-string that I used uh, on a lot of the A's recordings. It sound, has a really beautiful sound. Uh, well, a lot of the A's recordings I used on, on CIA and electricity in particular. The, the, the intro guitar and the solo guitar were played on the Rickenbacker 6-string. How many of your other guitars from the A's days do you still have in the uh, in the arsenal there? Uh, all but one. Uh, I, only, I only had a couple of guitars in, in those days. I want to talk about the A's because I grew up in Philly. And before I got to hang out on South Street or around town, you were part of a band that was on the radio, man. You were on Arista Records. You were the A's. What was it like when you guys were kids coming together? Because that 60s scene that was pretty popular in Philly had kind of faded a little bit in rock and roll. And the 70s was a little bit different going into when you guys kind of set things on fire again. Well, music in general was kind of bleak in the, the early to mid 70s. And then uh, it, the disco versus punk kind of thing. Uh, right. We had grown up, all of us had grown up except for Terry. We, he was like the, the newcomer to the band, but we had all grown up together. I was in my first band with Rocco when I was 11. Um, oh. and Richard, when I was 15, I think he was about 65 years old at that point. Uh, <laughs> all grown up together, and in 1977, we became Yays. Well, it was in the middle of the punk scene, but we were more new wavy than that. But we we came up through the bars and got sick of you know playing other people's songs and started to writing and got serious about it. Late '78, I think we got signed and we started the record, the first record in uh, March of '79. It, it was just a whole new experience to go into a real deal studio. None of us had had much studio experience at all, and it was not in, at the level of uh, the New York studios that we were using to make the A's records. So it was like a, a kids in a candy store. Darling.
I'll tell you, when, when the record came out the first time I was driving down the street and MMR played after last night, I'm like, die. <laughs> I had a pull over. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> we had worked on this, the songs we it's played. It's a dream, on. man, right? Totally. I remember listening to it on MMR. It was, it was the hot record when it first hit. Man, you guys were setting the thing on fire. Yeah, it was, it was chilling to, to, to achieve what we thought was like world-class success. <laughs> In a way, it was. When you got signed, do you remember the whole process leading up to it? How were you noticed? Nemperer, we got very close to a deal with Nemperer Records. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm, you have to forgive me because that was uh, just after the Civil War. So it was like a, a long <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pappy. Steampunk. I don't know what happened with Nemperer, but it did not work. And there was some wild interest from other labels. But for some reason, Clive Davis just sort of... Uh, latched onto us and, and saw or saw more i guess than, than anyone else did uh, that was also a time when he was trying to do more rock and roll on the label that had been known for being huge in pop realms but you were part of the the rock change at arista at that time too and we were also- he had success uh, with the follow-up a woman's got the power did much better nationally and, and and for you guys as a band what was that like going from the first to the second record and having a hit and other people being interested in recording the song well the other people weren't inter- interested in recording the song while we were together uh, that happened much later but uh once got the power was a bigger turntable hit than the first record was um it got a lot of radio play, but neither record really sold. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call either of them a success, although we were on the Billboard radio charts. Uh, and everywhere we played, we played to sold-out crowds that just loved us, but nobody bought the record. It was uh, – uh-huh. people referred to it as the squeeze syndrome because I think this, a similar thing had happened to them with a few of their records that everybody just adored them and went, and went crazy for their live shows. But in, in the beginning, I don't think they sold a whole lot of records. And certainly neither did we. And what else was going on in town in Philly at that time besides what you guys were doing? Was uh, Queter around, Hazard around yet? Hazard was around forever. The Hooters were starting up. I think Tommy Conwell happened just after I left, uh, just after we split up. Brew Review was around. Alan Mann had passed away. That was right around that time, I remember. Yeah. Uh, So there was a a scene. I think we kind of, I don't want to break my arm patting myself ourselves on the back, but we kind of blazed a a bit of a trail. We could dance all night to their music and do the dances about the hottest thing they have right now. Um, I I made it possible for people to play original music in some of the local venues, certainly some of the local bars, because we we came out of that bar scene and no one was doing original music until we like sort of forced it down their throats. It's it's tough to fire a band, fill in the place with people who (laughs) drink. That's right. Did you get to play CBGBs during that time period? And what was it like and who did you share the stage with? 
once we shared it with the Ramones, I think, and, and we may have played, I think we played there by ourselves. And it's funny, I played there in like 10 or 12 years later in, in the early 90s uh, with a band I was in with Cy Kernan from The Fix, the singer from The Fix. Mm-hmm. We were showcasing some songs. And I went to the dressing room and I think it was the same urine on the floor in the dressing room uh, when we played there in the early 70s. It sure was, man. <laughs> it's the fun. smell, right? We talked about it in an episode about CBGBs. When you went to the back, oh, yeah. and you walked in that dressing room, bathroom area, it was like, oh my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was ripe, but it was what a great place. What a fun vibe. It just totally electric. Actually, we organized a bus trip for our fans uh, from Philly. They, they chartered a bus and went up to New York to see us play CBs. If you were on that bus trip and you're listening, we want to hear from you. You send the email to imbalancehistory at gmail.com. How to, how to get that in there? Because I want to hear from anybody who's listening to this episode uh, who's on that trip. Wow. Hey, you know, I want to ask you how you get around to working with Cindy Lauper. I know Chertoff was the producer. He was working with the Hooters, and I know there's a connection there. And William Whitman was involved in all that, too. How do you end up being part of that whole thing? Uh, I was still living in Philly at the time, and the A's were in their final moments. Um, uh-huh. And I had expressed a desire to move to New York and you know, do sessions and uh, play on records and whatever, jingles, whatever I could you know, get my grubby little hands on. I, th- I think both Rick and Bill thought I would be a good fit for some of the songs to play some guitars, and they gave me a call, and I went up, and it, it was a blast. Well, no, actually, I just did overdubs on that record. I, didn't, I don't think I played with the rhythm section. I just went in and played guitars after the fact. Uh, but Rick and, and Bill Whitman, especially after the band broke up, made it possible for me to move to New York, and I went up and did some sessions and it was kind of terrifying because all of my virtually all of my recorded ex- recording studio experience was with people I knew people I had been in a band with and had worked on songs for a month so, to go up to New York city where I didn't know any of the other players. And I only knew the engineer uh, was a little scary, but everybody just welcomed me. There was all the guys were really great, especially uh, you may know Ralph Shuckett. He was from the Todd Rundgren at Utopia and he played in clear light and a bunch of other bands. He, he was just a really great guy. And he just was a sweetheart and he just made me feel really welcome and made what was otherwise a, a nervous, I don't want to say terrifying, but a nerve wracking experience. He made it very, very comfortable. Uh, got sort of settled into that and it became more second nature. But they, but Rick and Bill, especially Bill, made it possible for me to do all that stuff. Bill got me involved in the Patty Smythe record and I joined the band and did the tours with her. And Right. The Sophie B. Hawkins album, is that the Damn I Wish You Was Your Lover record? Because I was playing that at my first radio job. It is. Yeah, she was great. We actually did that in a studio that I had managed for a little bit in my sordid career in New York called Messina Sound. We did the record there, and she was just great to work with. And it was a great experience because I was at home. It wasn't my studio, but I ran it for a while, and I was there every day. So I was totally comfortable. And again, you know, I knew all the players by that point. And, and she was just great. She was just, she's just terrific. Damn. We're with Rick DeFonzo hanging out on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Uh, Rick, we have a sponsor. It's a brewery in Hapro. And uh, by the way, in the early days, the A's would have kicked ass there. They would have been awesome there. They got a nice little stage. 
So we're going to pause for the cause and come back and talk about more of your career, talk about more about your album Instrumental. And I got to ask you if it's possible that I heard one of your tasty riffs when I was watching an episode of Friends today. That's what's coming up in the second half with Rick Defonso on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Well, it gets to be the holiday season, Marcus. You know, you start thinking about gathering with friends, and in a lot of cases, over a pint or over Pennsylvania distilled spirits or some wine or cider. Gee, where could we go? How about our favorite? It's Crooked Eye Brewery. Right in the heart of Hatboro. It's a great place to share memories with friends and hear live music as well. Speaking of live music, you can find out who's coming to play when on their Facebook page. And as always, the beers are continually being updated. As well as your favorites on tap at Crooked Eye. Right there in the heart of Hatboro and in the heart of Delco out by you. Yeah, a few miles down the road from me at Jamie's House of Music, where you can see live music and grab a pint of your favorite Crooked Eye beer. And if you're going into the brewery location in Hatboro and you have a Crooked Eye fan in your life, stop by, have a pint, buy a gift card for the holidays, and stock up on Crooked Eye merchandise. We know the holidays are always crazy, so if you want to slow down, make sure you stop by and make it Crooked Eye. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. This is Battle of Britain from Instrumental, the new album from Rick DeFonzo. All right, we're all refreshed and ready for more with Rick DeFonzo, our guest here on the podcast this week. Actually, you're a guest every week, Rick. Uh, We were talking at the beginning about the songs from Instrumental, your new solo album that is available at rickdefonzo.com slash instrumental. Those songs are heard every week here on the podcast. They uh, they have high familiarity and no burn because people keep coming back for that tasty riff of bump in the night at the beginning of the podcast. So, you know. Well, 
It's must be good. At rickdefonso.bandcamp.com too. So. Oh, okay. Bandcamp, man. Remember that time at Bandcamp? <laughs> yeah, one time Bandcamp was playing the flute, I think. With, uh... <laughs> hey, did you uh, ever do movies? Did you ever do any riffs in, in parts in movies? You know, the, the thing where you're sitting there with the headphones. I have a song in an, in an Al Pacino movie called cleaner i believe uh there's like three or four films that have used little bits of my music oh, and there's an episode of the sopranos that uses some of my music which is was really strange because i was a, a devout devotee of that show i just watched it all the time i watched every episode a bunch of times and i didn't recognize my music because what they chose to do was it was a peace of mind that started off with drum machines and loops and synthesizers kind of like just stuff you've heard a million times it was nothing unique and about 45 seconds in my guitar comes in and then you go oh that's that's me you know I, I would have recognized that but they only used the first 30 seconds of it so it went right over my head it's like it just got right past me but how do you find out other than hearing it like that how do you find out and do my bmi track my bmi statement they, they just showed it showed up like the sopranos what are they and then friends started to show up and i thought when did friends ever use my music i swear to christ i'm I, i'm flipping through having lunch and i get on an episode of friends and i hear this little from the one scene to the other and i go that's fucking rick no I swear, I thought it was your riff because I know that you're at one of your credits. So, and now I'm seeing Jimmy Kimmel and Saturday Night Live, and you know it's like mm. it's all over the place. But I don't, I, I don't recognize anything. Uh, Shameless. Well, I, uh, sorry. Shameless, Shameless is using your music. My wife loves that show, so I have to watch it now and see if I can recognize any of your riffs. At some point, at some over like the years, Oprah used a piece of my music. Wow. Stunning. Well, at least you know they're working hard for you over there mm -hmm. at BMI, bro. You know, I mean, it says here, Good Morning America. Yeah. Uh, Monday Night Football. Well, I mean, how, how do you end up, how's your riff end up getting there, do you know? Well, those places, those shows end up getting them from the, the, the libraries and the producers that I work with. You know, I just never know where it's going to end up. But Fox, I, I did a, a little, a small library for them directly. They use that on football and, and all their sports programming. You know, I, I expect that. But otherwise, you know, I just never know where it's going to be. I got to say that the most thrilling moment for me in my career was when I lived in New Jersey calling Comcast customer support to see why my internet was crapping out. And I heard a piece of my music on hold. <laughs> <laughs> That is funny. Happened into Vats of Corporate Cash, Rick. Yo. I have arrived. Yeah. You were also on When Sharks Attack and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Babe Winkleman's Fishing Hour. Don't forget Babe. <laughs> okay, forget Babe. That was a big fat fish, too. Now, this is where it's time for me to simply shut up and give you all a chance to watch. Big fish. Maybe over 48. Yeah, it's a great fish. So I've seen my dad pretty excited about a lot of things, whether it's a big buck or a nice bass or whatever. Really big fish. Had to drop it back three times to get her to hit. You want to net this one. Just as he got the words out, I wish there was a 49-inch pike, and it slammed his bait. Nice <laughs> fish, <babe. laughs> 
But now we understand how that happens uh, for a lot of those things. Is that, is that different when it's a show like Grey's Anatomy? No idea it was going to show up there either. My wife watches uh, the show. She didn't recognize anything, but she uh, she doesn't really hear all the production music I crank out because there's huge volumes of it over the last 30 years. There's actually like 3,000 pieces of music that they're out wow. there. And it takes care of business, and that's a beautiful thing because you guys have uh, made the plan that so many do. You escape to sunny Florida. You got a nice spot there. You got a pool. You got the cage when the, when the mosquitoes are out. You can hide from them. You got the whole thing figured out down there, don't yeah, it's great. We're actually on a little canal that has turtles and otter and tilapia. And Well, I'm glad we covered all that about, you know, all those different little bits and how that happens, because I don't think a lot of people know that, Rick. And uh, it's really cool. It's really cool. Thanks for sharing. Maybe you can share some connective tissue for us, how you end up going from being the studio guy in New York, being on a few albums that we talked about already, right? How do you end up in the Bleeding Hearts band that goes to Berlin to perform The Wall. Well, in 1988, <clears throat> Roger was working on the second iteration of his Amused to Death record. He had done what he thought was the whole record, and he decided that he really wasn't happy with the guitar playing. He had worked with a, a good friend of mine that I thousand jingles with, and the Cindy Lauper record and some other records named Peter Wood, a British keyboard player. And he called Peter and said, do you know any good guitar players and, he, and peter was kind enough to recommend me and i got a phone call from roger saying would you like to come over and work on the record uh, i was supposed to go over for a couple of days two three days maybe and replace some of the stuff i went over and we hit it off right away and we played a bunch of we played a bunch of snooker before we even set up and started playing guitar he had a giant snooker table which is a, a billiards table for those who are familiar with it but it's I, a different game lad it's a way different game. It, there's still balls and cubes and everything, but it, the, the pockets are narrow and it's a giant table and it's just, it's, the strategy is different. And he taught me the game and within three or four games, I was competitive with him. And he said, oh, right, man, let's let, let's let's go. So, because he's a very competitive spirit. Uh, but we, we overdubbed it. Uh, I replaced some of the guitars on the record for a few days. And I think what really clinched it was he invited me into the house because the studio was attached to the house. Right. And, uh, he invited me into the house for dinner one night to meet the wife and kids and everything. And I, I went in and the dog came up to me and just loved me. And the kids were very cool. They were you know, very happy. They were, they were bubbly and I love kids and I love animals. And the, the kids and the dog liked me. So it was like, right then, you're staying. <laughs> Another ten you passed the sniff test. On the <laughs> it was great. I, I, I did, the, you know, basically the whole record. And then in the early, it, it never came out, or it hadn't came out at that point. Uh, and in the early '90s, he decided that it wasn't thematic enough. That it was a, a collection of songs, and they're great songs, but it didn't tie together like the Wall did, or as, you know, his other works. It wasn't a theme, so he reworked it again, and Patrick Leonard produced. And they brought in that bastard Jeff Beck and he replaced all my guitars, <laughs> except one. <laughs> now, and that's how you got to the wall? Well, no, that's how I got to do that record. Uh, and th then two years later in, in, in 90, we were actually, uh, we went, uh, did a road trip with Tabella uh, in Jamaica. He did his remote show from Jamaica and we were in Jamaica for uh, a week doing the show. And we got home. And I put my bags down and the phone rang and it was Roger saying, would you like to come to Europe and play the wall at the Berlin Wall? Because we had got along so well and he liked my playing 
it was time to start to actually do this live show. Jeff Beck had not replaced my guitars at that point. What a beautiful. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> good, good for, it's good for context to know that timing is everything, right? He did ask Eric Clapton to do the solo Uncomfortably Numb, and Eric turned him down. Thank God, because then I got to do it. But yeah. How chaotic, though, was it, though? You're getting this call. You're going to do this concert. The wall has come down. Uh, Roger yeah. thrown the gauntlet down years before with Redbeard down in Texas, right? He said, if they ever tear down the wall, I'll go play it. Yeah, yeah. sure, I'll do the wall again there. Yeah. And then it happened, and he had to actually, you know, step up. And uh, how crazy is it all of a sudden the swirling ver vortex is going on, and then suddenly here you are in the middle of it, and you're the fucker on the wall playing comfortably numb. Yeah, wow. it, was, it was a really, really thrilling time. Obviously, the show was the biggest it still may be the biggest in history, but the biggest audience, the biggest stage, the biggest cranes in the world were manipulating the the biggest puppets in the world. And it was like big, big, big. Uh, and the sense of history, just flying into Berlin for the first time, thinking that, you know, 50 years ago, this was filled with fighter planes and bombs dropping. The show itself was at a place where the Berlin Wall split into two. So there, and there was like maybe 100 acres between the two walls. And that's where the show is at Potsdamerplatz. Because the wall had just come down, uh, they had a mine sweep to make sure there was no landmines or anything. And they found, I don't know, 100,000 rounds of ammunition and they found a couple of deactivated mines. And the mine sweeper went clong and found this big hunk of metal. They dug it up and it was a, a cover to a shaft leading down to a bunker that they didn't know about. There was murals all over the walls, Nazis with wings flying through the sky and lightning bolts coming out of their eyes. And it, it was just an immense sense of history. It, it was just thrilling on every level, not only to, to work with the people who were involved in the show, but just to be there at that time and place when the wall had just come down. They had left part of the wall up uh, as the security for backstage they, to keep the uh, the fans out of the backstage area. It was. Right. A chain link fence on one side and the Berlin Wall on the other. Was, he didn't have to build in so far like he did in Long Island in the eighty, right? It was already there. All he yeah. had to do is, you know, fence it all. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. And, I, and I've been dying to ask you about this stuff for years. He, uh, after the show, he tracked incredible. me down. He wanted, he wanted to ask me um, what I thought as the colonist in the band, the token colonist. <laughs> uh. Everybody else was British. Uh, I was the token colonist. And he called me, in a, I was in a session in New York, and he, he called my house and Debbie told him where I was. And he called in and said, is Saturday Night Live a good idea for us, dear boy? And I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's completely your audience. I think it'd be great. And they, they thought about it for a while, and he decided not to do it. And instead, it was Sinead O'Connor with the episode where she tore up the picture of the Pope. What? In the victory of good over evil fight the real enemy yes that was supposed to be the That's night of Roger. crazy oh yes that is crazy i've got a couple questions about the wall as well thomas dolby was there what was he like to work with as a colleague? Because he is absolutely brilliant, and he is the one interview I bombed harder than anybody else because nope. of how brilliant he is. Until this interview. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you did. That will go past. I'm sorry. No, uh, great. You can't I, leave an opening like that for Defonso. Dude, I walked right into that one. You had to do Ugh. it. You had to do it. Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
I actually had uh, no contact with him. He just learned his bits. And since he wasn't on stage with us, he was dangling from right. the biggest crane mm-hmm. in the world. And that God, I was thinking about the same thing. Like, cause the, cause the Hooters played mm-hmm. and I think Cindy Lauper and, uh, performed or uh, were part of the, you know, performing troop that was part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see any of those guys or any of the other people who were in the other units? So well, to speak? Uh, we rehearsed with Cindy on site in Berlin a bit. Um, didn't rehearse with the Hooters at all. We rehearsed for months in London <laughs> at a, a place called Nomis. It was at this old 200-year-old, 500-year-old buildings, thick stone walls. And in the room next to us was Deep Purple. And every day we heard... The guest artists rehearsed there with us. So we rehearsed for a week on site in Berlin and with all the guest artists. And they all showed up in various stages of preparedness. Brian Adams was phenomenal. He he sang two songs. And Young Lust is very wordy. It was not an easy thing. He showed up the first second of rehearsal. He knew everything dead on. Dan Morrison, on the other hand, uh, we didn't see till the afternoon of the show, and there was speculation whether he was going to show up. And and he read the lyrics off of uh, sheets on the floor. He was he didn't kind of know the song. All I could tell you is that version became iconic because partially because of it being in the Sopranos as well. Yeah, it was it was a big surprise. We well, con- especially considering you saw that he wasn't very prepared. That is amazing. Well, we didn't see him all week. You know, everyone else came to rehearsals. Thomas Dolby, you know, now that I think of it, was not at rehearsals because he knew his bit. And I think he was lip syncing anyway. I, I seriously doubt he was mic'd. But again, he was flying from a, a crane. There was no real, you know, that was his gig. There was no re, you know, no way to rehearse that. Well, Carrick was phenomenal. In general, everybody was just great.
when you were looking out at the crowd, did you see anything wild? Did you see them trying to tear parts of the wall down? Like, what kinds of things did you see in the crowd? Uh, I didn't see much <clears throat> after a couple minutes into the show because they started building the wall in front of me. But the solo and comfortably numb, the wall was 70 feet high and there was a scaffold scaffolding behind it uh, that I had, I think, a little over a minute to get from my place on stage right up the scaffolding into the top of the wall under the platform. And I got up there. I had rehearsed it you know, many times and watched them build the uh, thing because it was scary. It was eight by ten, four by eight sheets of three quarter inch plywood over some bridge girders. I, I, Yikes. <laughs> 70 feet in the air before they put the railing around the edges of the, the, the platform, I would go up there and the wind would blow and I'd be scared to death because it was just, you know, I had I kind of numb myself. I don't have a fear of heights, but it was scary. During the show, I got up there and looked out, and it, I was in the dark, and it was just a sea of people as far as you could see, with lights swirling over them and everything. And you just couldn't see the end of the crowd. There was half a million people there. And my moment comes, and the solo starts, and the spotlights hit from below and beside me, and from the, one of the, the biggest cranes in the world again, all hit me at the same time, and the audience goes, Wah! and I just, it, it was a moment that will I'll, I'll never ever ever forget it it was just it was all i could do to keep from jumping out of my skin and remember what i was supposed to play it got to be really like you know, wow i felt the energy it was like i wasn't scared anymore it was just like i could do this every night let's, let's go and that was the the, the the sad part of it was we had rehearsed for months three months in europe and a, a week uh, or 10 days in berlin when we did the show and it was over well, now, now what are you going to do? And that was another thing that Roger had asked me weeks after the show. In the phone call that were, in which he asked me if we should do Saturday Night Live, he said there was a chance that we could do it in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, and L.A. There were very few venues 
in the world that would hold a, a show that size, even even if we pared it, if he pared it down a little bit. Uh, but so there was talk of doing a few, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, I think we should do the dark side of the moon on the moon." <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> he had about the same reaction you did. He, did he laugh? No. <laughs> I, I, I was waiting hilarious. to see what he said because I I, I, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine that he wouldn't have laughed and you know punched you maybe and then laughed and then said okay I get it yeah. I know but hey look he he, he kind of did serialize it man he he uh, he did dark side on a tour he did the wall and then took it outside to what I call unhealthy excess and one of the greatest concerts surpassing the original wall concert which I saw at the Long Island Mausoleum in 1980 was it? yeah it was got to go. Well, dude, that's a moment that you don't forget. That's a moment that you feel your whole life yeah, and that's, down to your core. And it's hardly it, it. the, 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 the end. You know, I mean, you've gone on it's in these ensuing 30-plus years. You've done so much. And now you've got a new album out. You're enjoying your life with your primary girl forever down there in Florida. You two have been together since you were we kids, right? Mm. 45 just, years together now. Awesome. How does she put up with you? That's all I want. It, every day is a, is a joy. I'm I'm a ray of fucking sunshine. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you a are. A Philly guy, a ray of fucking sunshine. <laughs> I met her, we met at a, a bar in Burlington, New Jersey, called the Anchorage, which Davey Vasikinen also came out of there, and uh, some other players. This bar was sort of like a little cultural mecca for the bands that weren't making any money. And I was on stage, and I saw her in the audience, and I said, "Ooh, I like her. She's pretty." During a break, I went up to her and said, would you like to dance? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you did but not. But on boom, and 45 years later, he's he'll be here all the week. She's the waitress. Take care what a dick. <laughs> but then we danced. <laughs> we fell in love and the rest of uh, oh. That's hilarious. Well, Rick, thanks for taking time out of your uh, busy day. Uh, I know you had some gardening work you had to get back to. In the palm trees. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's tough, too. The breeze in the palm trees at night makes a sound that's so hard to listen to, you know? <laughs> One of the worst places to be in a pandemic, virtual paradise in the United States, the oh. Eastern Gulf Coast. But thank you for yeah, taking some you, time Rick. out of your busy day, pal. And don't forget, check it out, rickdefonzo.com. That's D-I-F-O-N-Z-O.com slash instrumental. Check out his new album, Instrumental. You're a fan of the podcast. You already know half the music. Go buy it and uh, support our friend Rick in his retirement years down there in sunny Florida. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Love you, man. Thank you. Well, mark that one off the checklist for the podcast, Marcus. We thought about this a long time ago. Mentioned it, I think, a couple times on the podcast, having Rick on. And here it is. We finally got him on the uh, Zoom from Florida. I remember talking about getting Rick to be on our podcast and having the conversation with you about all of the cool stories that he was going to be able to share of his time back in those days in rock and was roll I and lying? what was going on. No, you weren't lying at all. I want to get him on again to talk more about that time period because of all the things that happened and the change. Boy. The only person more happy to hear you say that to me is Rick because he said to me the next day after we sat down and recorded, like, I got more stuff to talk about. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to come back, son. 
Um, so thanks to Rick down in Florida, and thanks to Deb for letting him take some time to play with us on the podcast. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And if you got to see Rick and his band anytime during those days and have any stories, please share them at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Or if you were at the wall in Berlin, we want to talk to you on this podcast. So send us an email at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. That's going to do it from the Dark Doc Studios. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. Thanks to Rick DeFonso, our guest on this episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.